All right, we're going to jump right in this morning. I'm going to ask you please to grab your Bibles. And uh, as always, if you don't have one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And uh, as we say each week, if you don't own a Bible, please see that as a gift from us to you today. Uh, But we're going to invite you to join with us in our tradition as we hold up our Bibles and say this creed together before we dive into our text today. Let's say this together. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart. And awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you, it's page 918. Ephesians chapter 4 is a text that we began almost three months ago. Wow, time has flown. Uh, The second Sunday in December, we began to let this text be the foundation for the conversation we've had for the last three months. And uh, we're going to circle back and kind of walk through that really quickly this morning uh, before we dive into the the topic or the principle that we're going to seek to address today. Ephesians chapter 4 paints the picture of why God gave this thing called the church. And, And most specifically, what the the mission or the vision is of, of kind of the leadership of the thing called the church. Verse number 11 of Ephesians 4 says that he, uh, meaning God, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, here's the purpose, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so the, what the church is is not the spectators of the work. Uh, they're those who are equipped to do the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. That were built up, right? And, and we see this analogy now used about uh, the, the idea of maturity in verse 13. Uh, we're being built up until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, right? The opposite of maturity would be immaturity. We're not children. We're, we're growing up. We're not tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. This idea of growing up of maturity is that we hold together truth and love so that we can grow up into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This idea that truth And love are not at odds. As a matter of fact, if truth is in love, you can't have one without the other. We don't have to compromise our truth to be loving. Uh, We don't have to sacrifice being loving to to stand for the truth. We believe in this biblical worldview that truth and love go together. And so we've walked into some difficult conversations holding together the attention of truth and love, that they both exist in these. And we've had some difficult conversations over the last two months. We, We talked first about the idea of religious liberty. We talked about the question, is America a Christian nation? Did America used to be a Christian nation? Is that even the point? Is it that we have a religious state that affirms the church? Or is it that the church has the freedom to be the church? That we have the freedom to be Christians in an oppositional culture, in a culture that doesn't agree with us? Are are we so intimidated by that? That we think everybody has to agree with us. And, and we laid this foundation of truth and love that, that, that the, the view of humankind is formed by the Genesis narrative. That the Genesis chapter 1 idea that God created man in his own image changes the way we approach all of these conversations. 
It changes the way we view life in the womb, as we discussed abortion. It changes the way we view life being taken outside of the womb, as we talked about capital punishment and the right to, de- to defend ourselves or bear arms or, or, or the idea of, of even a military. And, and what does that look like? Well, it's tied to the fact that human life has incredible value as image bearers, which changes the way we approach the conversation about immigration. It changes the way we have discussions about the topic of race, because we actually don't think there are multiple races. We believe there's a human race. And so how do we love cultures that are different because we're the same? We're image bearers in the creation narrative. And then this this idea is that God created uh, the body for his glory, not ultimately for ourselves. And so we we talked about the topic of sexuality and and of homosexuality, of, of gender confusion, And we even the last two weeks dealt with the topics of alcohol and recreational marijuana use. And it's interesting how many of you have said how much you've enjoyed these conversations. I will tell you they've not been nearly as enjoyable to talk about. This morning is no different. Uh, Our final topic in this series is we're going to discuss socialism this morning. And this has been an interesting exercise for me as I've been preparing for several months to, to talk about this today. Because I found out that I don't understand socialism. Because the way it's described today actually isn't what socialism is. And and the reason we're going to discuss this today is is two reasons. The the first reason we're discussing this this morning is because this is a a broader conversation in our culture today than at any time, I think, in American history. And it's going to become a larger talking point, I think, in this next election cycle. As a matter of fact, a recent USA Today survey found that 4 in 10 Americans embrace some form of socialism so a lot of our culture is 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 having a a view or a a shift in opinion towards this issue and so therefore i think the church should have a voice in this issue and specifically young adults young adults and teenagers today millennials and generation z have a very favorable favorable view of socialism matter of fact they're considered the most uh, friendly generation towards socialism that america has ever known Another recent survey said that 53% of Americans under the age of 30 view socialism favorably. 53%. As opposed to less than a third of those over 30 who view socialism favorably. Similarly, a Gallup poll found that 69% of those under 30 said they would be willing to vote for a socialist presidential candidate. So this is not just a, a large topic of conversation in the culture. Uh, the, the leaders in training who are coming up from the next generation have a very positive view of socialism. So I think it's worth talking about today. The other reason I think it's worth talking about is we're being told that it's very Christian. One of the stories being told in the culture today is that socialism matches the teachings of Jesus. And that Jesus would prefer socialism. And it, it looks like that's what the early church practiced. We'll talk more about that in a few moments. Um, specifically, a, a Barna group just did a, re- a poll where they found out that more Americans think Jesus would favor socialism than think that he would favor capitalism. Now, the majority of Americans surveyed said, I don't think Jesus would prefer either because that wasn't his point, And I'm in that category. But of those who picked one, either capitalism or socialism, almost twice as many Americans said he would favor socialism than he would favor capitalism. And, and what I find interesting, and I hope this makes sense coming out of my mouth the way it does in my head, I find it really intriguing, specifically about millennials and Generation Z, 
that the most agnostic and atheist generation we've had in American history has this really strong opinion about what Jesus thinks. <laughs> the most agnostic and atheist generations that we've had are telling us what Jesus taught. And, and it's kind of like socialism is the one part of that culture that are like, well, we don't reject this part of Jesus. And, and so therefore, I think we need to speak into the fact that I, I don't think either one are the teachings of Jesus. And by the way, socialism isn't meant to be Christian. The intention of socialism was never to align with the teachings of Jesus. The, the ideology of socialism was formed through the teachings of Karl Marx, who called religion the opiate of the people. Right? A paraphrase of Karl Marx is religion is the opiate of the people. Right? Like y'all are just getting high off of your religion. Good for you. He didn't have a favorable, favorable view of Christianity or of any religion for that matter. And so I think we need to contend for what our faith really is. I've said a couple of times in this series, I think we deserve the right, we deserve the, the opportunity to speak for our own faith. And, and I want to do that towards socialism this morning. So the first thing I want to do is define socialism because I, I think a, a lot of young people favor socialism. They're just not sure what it is. And so I think we need to appropriately, appropriately define it because it's being misdefined um, and miscommunicated, I think, in, in modern culture today. Socialism, by definition, is a political and economic system in which there is government ownership of the means of production. That, that is the, the, the nuts and bolts definition, is the means of production. And that's not language we typically use today. But it's the idea that the government controls where money comes from. The government controls where money comes from so that they can distribute that equally, right? There, there is a primary focus of providing equality uh, foundational in the view of socialism. Now, I'm going to warn you, as with this slide right now, as with what I'm saying right now, the next couple minutes are kind of academic. So hang with me because we're going to get back to a, a broader picture in a moment. But it is really important to me that we see that socialism has nothing to do with religion. It's about large government it's about large government and control, and it's, it is contrasted with our current economic system, which is capitalism. Capitalism, on the other hand, promotes private property, private ownership, private possessions of goods, limited role and power and presence of government in individual lives. So the, the biggest difference between capitalism and socialism is the ownership and the authority of, of personal possessions. Here's what neither socialism nor capitalism are. They are not religious views. <laughs> right? Uh, one, one Princeton professor I read about this said, the largest distinction between socialism and Christianity is that one is a religion and one is a governmental and economic policy or uh, uh, perspective. They, they couldn't be more different. But there are some elements of socialism that sound Christian because there are some really good views and motives in socialism. I don't necessarily agree with the outcomes of those views, but there are some important talking points. So this morning what I want to seek to do is lay a biblical worldview, a biblical framework to discuss socialism. And the first two principles that we're going to discuss uh, of these biblical principles are on the more academic side. So hang with me for just a second. Biblical principle number one is simply this. The Bible affirms again and again ownership of private property. 
As a matter of fact, the eighth commandment in the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not steal. And, and the point of, of that command is that we're supposed to honor people's private property, right? Uh, that there would be no command for that if it was, nope, nothing is yours, right? That there would be no need for that command. Hopefully we'll talk more about that command actually this coming spring. A brilliant article by Julie Royce talks about a conversation um, that's been documented that President Obama had with a little girl. He was trying to explain, uh, explain the, the values of socialism to this little girl who honestly was saying, but I don't agree with that. They, they were having a little bit of a disagreement. And, and here's what Obama said, and, and I'm quoting here. He said, we've got to make sure, that, that's important language, make sure that people who have more money help the people who have less money. And then he said this, if you had a whole pizza and your friend had no pizza, would you give him a slice? And that sounds very Christian, right? Like what Christian, if they have a whole pizza and see someone without a pizza, doesn't believe that Jesus calls us to generosity? But it is important, Julie, Julie Royce uh, points out, he wasn't endorsing being helpful or uh, being generous because he wasn't endorsing people voluntarily sharing their pizza. What he was endorsing is the government's authority to take your pizza and give it to the person who doesn't have any. That's very different, right? To put it in another way, she uses this analogy. If you have three cars and your neighbor has no cars, does the government have the right to take one of your cars and give it to your neighbor who does not have one? And then she says this, that's not Christian, that's stealing. Both the Old and the New Testaments affirm the right of individuals created in the image of God to own personal property. Matter of fact, the laws of God in the Old Testament governmental uh, system provide for the protection of personal property rights. And, and, and even beyond that, the, the stewardship principles that the scriptures teach, how can I steward something if it's being controlled by someone else? But, but the Bible holds us accountable for how we steward our resources and our Possession. So biblical principle number one is that the Bible affirms the concept of private property. Here's biblical principle number two. And hang with me on this for a minute because maybe you've never heard this before and this is no big deal to you. Biblical principle number two is the book of Acts does not promote socialism. There are many teaching in universities today that the book of Acts is sort of like a socialistic uh, manifesto. That not only did Jesus teach socialism and kind of model socialism, the early church functionally practiced socialism. And these professors, who do not have theological training, will point specifically to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and Acts chapter 11 for a couple snapshots that sound maybe like they might be kind of sort of maybe socialistic. And, and the first one is, man, Acts chapter 2 is an important a passage of scripture for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Acts chapter 2 is the day of Pentecost. This is the launch of the church. That This is the genesis of this thing that we're doing in this room today. And in this incredible move of the Holy Spirit of God, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God, thousands of people declare faith in Jesus Christ and are born again. They make that faith public by being baptized, and they become part of the church. 
And the end of Acts chapter 2 describes this new culture of this thing called the church. Acts chapter 2 verses 44 and 45 say, All who believed were together and had all things in common. That is uh, what some socialists will say. That's the language of equality. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And, and, and the socialist jumps up and goes, man, that is socialism. And, and this concept is, is repeated. We won't look at that passage, but it's repeated in Acts chapter 4. As a matter of fact, Acts, Acts chapter 4 actually uses the language. There was no needy person among them. Like they achieved the success of socialism. Further in, uh, in Acts chapter 11, the phrase is used um, that the disciples determined as everyone had ability or according to his ability. And what a socialist would say is that sounds just like Karl Marx's from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Foundational Marxism, that's on the next slide, is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Here's the problem with this statement. That's not actually socialism. Because socialism is actually from the government, not from each. And it's not to each according to his need. It's to each that the government thinks has a certain need. Right? So e even this is misconstrued, but that's not the point I want to make right now. A lot of people say, man, that sounds just like the book of Acts. The book of Acts affirms socialism. And, and here's what I would say. That there's three ways in which I believe the book of Acts isn't even thinking about socialism. Before I tell you what they are, I want to say, Kevin DeYoung said, it's important that we don't make the Bible say less than it says or more than it says. I'm not telling you that, that the, the Bible contends for capitalism. I've actually heard some preachers say that. I, I, don't, I don't think that's the case. But I absolutely don't think people can tell us that it contends for socialism. And, and there's a couple reasons why. One of the reasons that I believe that's, that's not the case is, remember that language of means of production, right? That the original source of wealth is controlled by a central location. If the early church was practicing socialism, everyone would have given their businesses or their farms or their way of making a living to the control of the church. We don't see that at all. When we meet Lydia, the seller of purple, she was still the seller of purple, not the church at Philippi sold the purple. Does that make sense? So the, the means of income was still theirs. Second difference is we don't see that the early church lost their private property. The church met in people's homes. It was still called their home. The church didn't take ownership of their home, right? But the most important distinction is they did so voluntarily. Any of the generosity that they showed, they did so because the Spirit of God convicted their hearts to say, I have more than I need. I want to help someone who's in need. No one told them to do that, forced them to do that, took it against their will, which by definition is the concept of socialism. So Acts chapter 2 does not promote or describe socialism. Okay, that's the more academic part. Now we get to biblical principle number three, and this is where it gets exciting to me. Because this is the part where we do kind of agree a bit with socialists who say, this sounds Christian. Listen, we, we do believe that Jesus is compassionate to the hurting and the suffering and the broken. Always. 
So when a socialist says, man, we live in a wealthy society and people are really hurting and Jesus would care about that, they're absolutely right. That is who my Jesus is. Jesus is compassionate to the hurting. This whole series, the idea of truth and love, we've said that none of these issues are about the issues. This isn't about positions or policies or platforms. This is about a person, and his name is Jesus, and he is love. And so if the Christian response to socialism isn't, no, God doesn't care about the poor, then guess what? You're both misrepresenting Jesus, right? The reality is the church needs to understand that the Christ whom we represent is the leader of compassion to the poor. Matter of fact, there's not a religion in the history of the world whose religious book, the Bible, says more about the poor than our book does. We do serve a God who is moved with compassion for those who are suffering. By the way, that's true of Jesus today in this room. And maybe in this room you're not suffering economically, but maybe you are suffering in your marriage or your health or your hope or with addiction, and I want you to know, here's, here's the truth of the story. Jesus loves you. He's moved by what you're suffering through. He is compassionate. He is available. He does care. And you aren't alone. The reality of, of our culture today that, that socialists struggle with is, aren't we more compassionate to those who are suffering? Why aren't we more compassionate? Because Jesus would be in their right. The other position of socialism that I agree with is we live in a really broken world. That's biblical principle number four. We do live in a broken world. And I wish we didn't. And I wish we could ignore it. And I wish we could pretend like everybody has the same uh, healthy and happy life. And No, we live in a really broken world. Just this week, the, the stories I've heard of real people in our temple families suffering unbelievable heartache. We live in a broken world. Right now, this morning, as, as we sit in the comfort of this room, 700 million people in the world live in poverty. Living on less than $1.90 per day. Real human beings with real stories with real hopes and real dreams for a future. 700 million people today. And I think some of these statistics are important as we're coming to a week of Thanksgiving. There's 700 million people around the world today living in poverty. Many of them are children. And this breaks my heart. Nearly 20,000 children die every day of preventable diseases if they just had the right sanitation if they just had access to very available medicines preventable diseases not rare untreatable that number is staggering to me today today an average of 20,000 children will die who don't have to that's broken Something is wrong. And that's not just the global story. Right here in the United States of America, last year, not 50 years ago, not 100 years ago, not when the world was black and white, 16.2% of the children in the U.S. last year lived in poverty. 
Almost one in six children, that is 11.9 million kids in the United States of America, with all of our more, (laughs) with all of our stuff, one in six of our children are living in poverty in the U.S. Last year, according to the USDA, just over 11% of U.S. households were what they consider food insecure. Oh, I hate that there's such a thing as that phrase. It breaks my heart that, that there's such a thing as food insecure in the U.S. That the security of knowing there's going to be the next meal. More than 10%. Like when you drive into your neighborhood this morning, count 10 houses. According to the U.S. statistics, one of those houses isn't confident they have enough food. They're not dreaming of sopapilla cheesecake. They're hoping there's enough food. That's staggering to me. But I love, I love David Platt's approach to some of these statistics. Um, again, I've, I've referenced the book Counterculture several times in this series, a very helpful book. But in there he talks about how these statistics might make us feel guilty, but they don't really change our hearts. (laughs) And they're not intended to make us feel guilty. They're intended to just be truth. Just the reality of our situation. Because the truth of the gospel always causes us to see reality and then respond with love. That's truth and love. The answer to that isn't socialism. It's people who believe the gospel. I love what Platt said. He said, real Authentic, sustainable care for the poor will only happen when any low-grade sense of guilt is conquered by a high-grade sense of gospel. Whew, that's good. <laughs> Listen, guilt isn't going to transform us, but when we see that, that we are the poor people, we were poor spiritually, and the one who owns everything laid it down to pursue us, that's the gospel, we will be motivated to live that out. The answer, I'm going to say this again later, the answer for the brokenness in our culture is not socialism or any other political or economic view. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's people who've been rescued from materialism and set free for a greater cause who care about those who are broken and hurting. It's the gospel. It's simply the gospel. So, biblical principle number one that we said um, is that the Bible affirms uh, the, the right or the value of, of private property, that the book of Acts is not a socialistic manifesto. And then more importantly, biblical principle number three was Jesus is compassionate to the hurting. And truth and love, principle number four is we live in a broken world. Here's principle number five, and, and this is where we do agree with socialists. We are rich, and we are accountable. We are rich. And, and I don't think we feel rich because the screaming billions of dollars spent on advertising tells us that we're not. But we are. Those of us in, in this room, you've, you've been with me to visit the third world. And, and what happens is I, I tell everybody who goes on a trip with me, it seems like for six weeks when we come back from a trip, I don't know why six weeks, that just seems to be the average, we have this crystal clear clarity of how spoiled we are. And then eventually the noise of advertising 
drains us back into, well, I want the new fill in the blank. We are rich. And the scriptures say that those who are rich are held accountable. To whom much is given, much is required. In, if you've read the book, When Helping Hurts, phenomenal, life-changing book written by two Christian economists, Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. Here's what they say. If we have clean water, check. Sufficient food and clothes. I'm going to put two checks next to the food. A roof over our heads at night. Access to medicine. A mode of transportation, even if it's public transportation. And the ability to read a book. Then relative to billions, with a B, billions of people in the world, we are incredibly wealthy. Things that I confess, man, seven days out of seven, I take most of that list for granted. And they are distinctives in the eyes of the rest of the world. We live in an uncommon moment in human history, and we think this is normal. They, they say later in that book, by any means, by any measure, we are the richest people to ever walk on planet Earth. We're accountable for that opportunity. And part of, I think, the frustration of Generation Z and the millennial generation is, man, y'all have it so good, boomers. Okay, what are you going to do with it? Like, people are hungry in your neighborhood, and you're trying to build a bigger house? There's a dissatisfaction among the younger people coming up with how wasteful we have been. And I actually think that does mirror the heart of God. No wonder they're confused and think socialism is Christian. David Platt says, We need to open our eyes to the reality that when most people in the world hear the word rich, they picture us. You know, it's funny. I I don't ever meet anybody in America that thinks I'm rich. They find out I'm a minister and they're like, oh, do you have gas money? (laughs) But everywhere I travel in the world, they treat me like I'm Bill Gates. And when they think of rich people, y'all, they're thinking of you around the Thanksgiving table. And that's not meant to make us feel guilt. Again, hear that. That's meant to motivate us to leverage our resources because we're the gospel people. We're the people who understand there's more to life. Now, I do feel like I need to say this before we move on. Let me put a parenthesis about socialism. And, and, and man, I want to be real loving uh, to any Generation Z or millennials in the room who are pro-socialism. I mean this really loving, okay? Really spoiled rich Americans who are acting like they're Robin Hood, stealing from the rich to give to the poor. <laughs> Listen, taking money from wealthy Americans to give to slightly less wealthy Americans isn't Robin Hood. That's actually not social justice. If if we're going to forcibly take wasteful wealth from Americans, we should be serving the rest of the world. Not to say there's not poor in America, but most of the people chirping about socialism actually aren't poor compared to the rest of the world. Please don't hear that out of context. That's going to get tweeted by somebody. Broader perspective, this isn't Robin Hood. We aren't being noble. We just think it's not fair that we don't have as much as somebody else. 
That's called greed, not compassion. I love you. Biblical principle number six. Oof. We as broken, fallen people tend to equate wealth with worth. Here's, here's one of the core fundamental problems of socialism and of America in general that is healed and rescued and redeemed by the gospel. My value is not tied to my wealth. My worth and my wealth are not the same thing. My value as a human being is not about my income or the size of my home or how many cars I have or how new those cars are or what my stock portfolio looks like. The things that we think are most important actually have nothing to do with our value as humans. We falsely equate wealth with worth. And the whole illusion of socialism that we're promoting equality, all we're talking about is stuff. Getting more stuff to make things more fair doesn't give me equal value. In America, and that's the part of the definition of socialism that I think is really lost in the conversation today. We've lost our way. Seventy years ago, this was clear. In 1949, according to a Gallup poll, 34% appropriately defined socialism as government control of business. Right? The means of production. In 1949... At least a third of us understood socialism for what it is. But today, last year in 2018, 23% understood socialism as referring to some form of equality. The misunderstanding of socialism today is, man, we just want everybody to be equal. As though my personhood is defined by whether I have as much stuff as you do. What's underneath the modern view of socialism is the lie that he who dies with the most toys wins. Right? The fact is that my mission in life is not to, oh, I got a raise, I need to get something bigger. Right? Oh, I got a, I got a promotion at work, I better buy a new car. But there's truly a mentality in our culture today that says, man, I, I deserve this. We're going to talk more about that next Sunday. I've earned this, so it's mine. And, and here's where we believe value is found. You didn't think we were going to get past another sermon without going to Genesis 1, did you? Genesis 1:27. here's where our value is found. Then God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. That's where my value is found. Whether I have lots of stuff or not a lot of stuff, I'm an image bearer of a majestic God. Of a holy God. That's where my worth is found. Not in my accumulation of wealth. And that's about the most un-American thing you can say. Here's where we will part for the rest of our time. Biblical principle number seven that I would say in regards to the conversation of socialism is there's a better way. A biblical worldview gives us a better option than either socialism or capitalism. It's the Christian life. The Christian life is a better alternative to any political system or any economic system. Now, I'm going to share with you an incredible quote from David Platt, and we're just going to kind of park on that quote for the rest of our time together this morning. The quote begins this way, In a culture that places great emphasis on leisure, luxury, financial gain, self-improvement, and material possessions... 
It's quite an introduction to a quote, right? Man, that's us. That, that's our culture. It will be increasingly countercultural for Christians to work diligently, live simply, give sacrificially, help constructively, and invest eternally. Yet this is what we must do. And I would add to that phrase and say, and if we do that, there's no need for any conversation about socialism. Do you know what I believe the hope is to all of the brokenness in the world? It's the church of Jesus Christ. And if we will live like the church and act like the church, we will be the hope of the nations. And the principles of this quote, I think, are so good. Christians to work diligently. It is right and honorable to say, I want to do the best job I can at my job. I want to earn as much as I'm capable of earning. That's holy. That's healthy. Now, if the motive is, I want to work diligently to get enough money so that I can blow it all on myself, I, don't, I think now we've gotten off the rails. It's a healthy thing to say, I want to work diligently. But, but the, I believe a biblical worldview is, I'm going to work diligently, but live simply. It is a biblical model to live below our means so that we can make a difference in the world. And unfortunately, that's almost impossible to find today. And I, I love the fact that we're talking about living simply when we're the week before Black Friday. <laughs> Listen, most of us don't live simply so that we can be generous to the suffering this time of year. Most of us spend more than what we actually have to spend on ourselves. And I think there's a better way. What if we truly lived below our means? To live simply and to give sacrificially. One of the greatest quotes on generosity I've ever read was by the great C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was asked, how much, or how do I know how much to give? And, and he acknowledged that that's a difficult question. And he said this, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. And then he goes on to describe, he said, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we probably are giving away too little. He's essentially saying we should give sacrificially to help others until it hurts a little. Until we actually have to say no to something for ourselves. That's generosity. And with Christmas coming, what a perfect time to model that. I'm going to say no to something for myself so that I can bless somebody who's struggling to give sacrificially and then to help constructively. I love that, that, that we're not saying, oh, there's a lot of poor people in the world. I hope they get help somewhere. Man, to roll up our sleeves and to enter in. Those of you who are fostering and, and adopting to not go, oh, this is a problem, but to say, I want to help. I want to actually get involved. I want to engage in being the hands and feet of Jesus and not just the mouth of Jesus or the mind of Jesus or the heart of Jesus. To get involved in, and to help constructively. And then to invest eternally. To realize that when we serve the broken, that the scripture teaches clearly, we're investing in something that will bear fruit forever and ever and ever and ever. We're, we're storing up, we're laying up treasure in heaven. This is the answer to socialism. There is a better way.